be there for you this morning. And scripture might be on the screen. Should be? I mean, yes, Roger says yes, it's there. So, um, hear the word of the Lord, and Jackie will read for us and pray, and then we'll get into it this morning. Good morning, saints. We're in Luke 24, 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew, drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Lord, we thank you that it was your purpose to reveal yourself to us. And first through the prophets, and then through your birth and life, your death and your resurrection. And thank you for having left your spirit with us, who continues to speak to us those truths, Lord, that we might walk in the light of them. We pray, Father, during this season that you would help us, that you would continue to open our eyes, that you would open our hearts, that you would help us to always receive you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jackie. Well, good morning again. I'm Jonathan. If we've not met, it's great to have you with us. We have a lot of people sick, so those of you joining us online on our live stream, it's great to have you with us, and hopefully you're comfortable in your PJs and nice warm home. Um, and we have the smell of chili 
in the air because our youth have our chili and soup cook-off, which is not really a cook-off. It's more like we're just going to eat a ton of chili and soup. Um, and Goose made his famous vegan um, carne asada chili. So uh, it's not really vegan, but it's, it's delicious. So, right. Thanks, thanks for getting it, Chris. That's good. Um, so we continue in our study of Luke 24, and we're using it for Advent to see just the reality of the resurrected Jesus, like after his resurrection, what does it mean for us as we wait for his second arrival, celebrating uh, the incarnation at Christmas, and then eager and having anticipation for the restoration of all things, earth made right and beautiful. And here we gather with some saints on the road after the resurrection in their own waiting and looking for redemption. So the big idea for today is that the redemption of the newborn king is realigning for humanity, that it does a work, that it moves us from things we thought and wanted to what we should be about. And our, our van was in the shop this week. Some of you in our small group know we've been waiting months to get our van fixed and just some electrical stuff that has been crazy and it was really frustrating and hopefully though it is fixed and it's working right as they gave it to us Friday night and uh, hopefully that will continue to be the case right it certainly through the life of warranty I think that's how they play you right you get to warranty and then it really breaks down they must have like a computer button they they press but It just got us thinking about, it had me at least this week, thinking about our last van. Some of you remember that beautiful blue beast. And uh, we really just have not had good luck with minivans. And so maybe this is an advertisement against minivans. They're so awesome. They're low to the ground. You can fit a ton of stuff in them. But we just haven't had luck. The minivan we had before we moved to San Diego, do you guys remember the story about that? It burned in an auto shop, so it was an ashen heap as it was getting a new engine, because the engine blew out. So really bad luck. And the last one, I don't think that van was ever in alignment. If you ever drove with us, you probably had nightmares of it, because it would like shake as we were going over 60 on the interstate, because it was just kind of wobbly. And I, I, we would get it realigned, and it would never quite work. Eventually to the point where it's like, we just need a new van, hence our newer van and it just it wasn't worth fixing maybe you have had a car long enough to have it realigned anybody yeah like some of us most of us right you hit just one too many curbs and so you needed to get it adjusted so the things weren't off anymore and usually realignment works like they're really good Uh, miles automotive if you need somebody in escondido that's pretty much all they do suspension and realignment they can help you out um, just they, they're not paying me they probably should but it usually works and then when you're done with the realignment your car is propelled forward in the direction you're supposed to be going straight and it's just that reality that life is full of realignments these moments of adjustment back to what is most important what is truest of you conversations that jostle you back into alignment with right values or goals or situations that rhythmically bring you into correction over time as i approach 45 right some of you are a little more beyond me and many of you are 
younger, but I'm, I'm realizing that I'm increasingly happy in a context of my own finitude and like just what is versus the context of possibility that you have in your 20s and 30s or even a little younger as teenagers. And so seasons then are also tools that are um, used in alignments or realignments for us. And like all the Hallmark movies where the silly white woman who's lost her way in the big city goes back home at Christmas to the small town, is reminded of her hopes and dreams and meets that guy who's secretly rich too. Um, And life changes in those seasons. And so maybe you're in need of that Hallmark movie moment. And I think realignments happen to organizations as well. Whole groups of people can be corrected back into the right direction. Churches center on core values to set the direction of that family of people. And do you guys know our core values? Anybody? This is, yeah. Jesus. Yes, we're rescued by Jesus, reshaped into family for the renewal of others in all things. And so we want to be aligned into those things. And I think Advent is a perfect season to recognize that faith in Jesus is really just a life of constant realignment to what is right and true over our own preferences or presuppositions about life. In our text today, a beautiful, important, vital text in Scripture has Jesus, this resurrected king, dealing out realignment to his disciples. And I think we can gain some insight for ourselves as we determine to map the course of our lives by our true north, this resurrected king. Just think of the context a little bit. This is after the cross. These, uh, These are people that have been following Jesus listen to his teaching, and then he dies on a cross, executed by Roman soldiers. And then after the resurrection, Luke tells us that very day, two disciples, one we know is Cleopas. We don't know. Maybe that's Jesus's uncle that named some other places. We have really no idea who these two are. And they're traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which is seven miles away. And they're having what appears to be some heavy conversation about all the things that had just happened in Jerusalem during the Passover week. And you can imagine that it's an intense conversation, right? Some, we may want to image or see this as uh, the two disciples being a husband and a wife. That's a potential reality here. And they're having this intense conversation about everything that has transpired And what do they make of what has just happened? This entry uh, like a king on the back of a donkey into town. And then that exuberation turns into crucifixion. And now the body of this man is missing. And then Jesus, who they're, they're kept from recognizing, interestingly enough, walks with them. He joins them as they're in the midst of this conversation. And in conversation, he fixes some thinking and then lights their hearts on fire. I think there's two movements in the text that we want to uh, have as our structure for this morning. Just the reality of the purpose of redemption and then the promise of redemption. So we start with the purpose of redemption. And why redemption? You know, this idea of vindication or absolution. 
Dictionary defines it as the action of saving or being saved from sin, error, or evil, clearly influenced by Christianity there with that definition, or just the action of regaining or gaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. And we use redemption because that's what the disciples are actually talking about. They thought this was the one to redeem Israel. And we see it in verse 17. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? As they stood still looking sad. And Cleopas then, a bit sarcastically, because he's like, who the heck are you? You're like the only one that doesn't know what just happened in Jerusalem. And he lays it all out for this stranger on the road. They tells of Jesus of Nazareth, this one that was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, who was killed by the chief priests and the people. And then this is where we get it from Cleopas. He says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. It's like the third day and we don't know, we don't understand. We thought this was the one to redeem Israel, to change everything. And we don't know if that's actually what has happened. The women were saying he is raised from the dead. They saw angels and we just don't know. Essentially, for these disciples, it's that this is just not going the way we thought it would. Things aren't falling into place that, as we presumed. And they followed Jesus and rightly because he was the hope for Messiah. That's why they were in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover with this rabbi, the Savior. But what they believed the Redeemer would do was actually off. It was out of alignment. Things were not unfolding the way that they expected. One writer says Cleopas and his companion were hoping in accord with the promises in Scripture that Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. And in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the redeemer of Israel, the one who promised to restore Israel from exile. And Israel prayed for redemption. And we see the hope for Israel in Psalm 130. And he says he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And Jesus came as the redeemer as both Zechariah and Anna prophesied from the beginning in Luke 1 and 2. But he redeemed the people in a way they did not anticipate. And we get a sense for their wrong view here, right? They, they have this political, military view of what the Redeemer, the Messiah, was going to do. They had hoped for a king with an army that would dash the enemy, that would cast off the oppression of Rome, give them their nation back. I don't want to be too harsh to these two disciples on the road that have missed it, what redemption was supposed to provide, because lots of people expected this. And shoot, I think even today, some that profess faith in Christ expect this type of redemption. Because there really are lots of ways that we get redemption wrong. Old Creflo Dollar said Jesus died on the cross so you could have abundance and wealth. It's one view of redemption. Uh, a pastor turned senator said the meaning of Easter, the, the resurrection, is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Christian or not, through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Bull. And even within the church, there's this like burgeoning Christian nationalism in our day that redemption is about us taking control as the big strong church, judging sinners and forcing submission to a way of life. And it is all quite absent Jesus. 
But even more subtle is the posture that redemption mean God, it means God will crush everyone we don't like. Charlie Date's great pastor and preacher in Chicago calls this the get em God posture. You read scripture, talks about sinners, you're like, get em God. It's everybody but me. It's where we see other sinners as more deserving as judgment than us. And it bubbles up in every corner of life. Even those well outside the sphere of faith lurch into these directions of self over all other people. But the king was to gallop in on a horse and set us at his right side, ruling forever. But instead he died. He was buried and now the grave is empty and it's the third day. It's too late. That's their thinking. And he said to them, I love this. This this is the gracious Savior of the world, gives himself. And he calls them fools. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? The the redeeming work of, of Jesus is about something deeper than political power and prestige. It's about something deeper than control in this world. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. He suffered, he died to solve the problem of sin. From the beginning, humanity has chosen to disregard our creator, the God who has given us life and breath and purpose and choose our own way. Try to be wise beyond him. And this is what Jesus has come to solve, to make righteous all those who would believe in him so that hearts could be renewed, made right and surrendered to God. So even Romans could be saved. So you can stand before God blameless, regardless of what you've done or experienced in your life. Lincoln Duncan, a a Presbyterian minister, says redemption uh, refers supremely to the work of Christ on our behalf, whereby he purchases us, he ransoms us at the price of his own life, securing our deliverance from the bondage and condemnation of sin. We see it all over the New Testament. The apostles get this right finally because Jesus has opened their eyes to see the reality of it. And Paul will say, as we're giving thanks to the Father in Colossians 1, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He says in Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And it's this redemption then from which we live. And Paul to the, the church and to, to, to Titus, 
the church in Crete, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his possession who are zealous for good works. Like that there is an Advent text. As we wait for his arrival, he has given us redemption so that we will live different for his glory, that we'll step into the purpose that he has called us, that for which we are made, which we exist for. And this is the reason for the season for redemption. His first arrival and the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord, one who would suffer, who would take on death to redeem his people. And this is actually what we need. We don't need another scheme to get ahead in life. We don't need to prop up princes as if they are our hope. This is exactly what the disciples on the road to Emmaus need. Not a military or earthly king, but to recognize there is value in suffering and something more to carry us through, something to actually hope in. And this is what aligns us on the the way to what we were meant for, the redeeming work of Christ, forgiveness in his name. The purpose in life is best lived when we see it. That we gain forgiveness in Christ. That our standing before the creator of the universe changes. And we become righteous in him. And we live from and for this redemption. This brings us to the promise of redemption. Luke says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a a vital verse of scripture. All of the Bible, Moses and the prophets, it's all about Jesus. Oh, to hear that sermon, it would have won so many arguments in seminary for me. If I could just have cited Jesus in the ultimate sermon, here's what he said about himself. So I really feel like this is the calling in the work of the church to see and expose the promise of redemption on every page of Scripture. To see the true hero, the one encountered in dry places, the one foreseen in foreign spaces, to follow the thread through it all, that which carries and gives us purpose. Are you ready? In Genesis, Jesus is the new Adam, the descendant of Abraham, the better Melchizedek, and the latter of Jacob. In Exodus, Jesus is a baby born under threat, guiding angel in the desert, the Passover lamb, and the tabernacle. In Leviticus, Jesus is the lamb of God and the great high priest. In Numbers, Jesus is the symbol on a pole, bread from heaven and the watering rock. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet like Moses, the fulfiller of the law. In Joshua, Jesus is the leader into the promised land. In 
judges, Jesus is like Samson, is commissioned for miraculous conception to be a savior. In Ruth, Jesus is a descendant of David through Ruth. In Samuel, Jesus is the one who grew in wisdom and favor with God, like Samuel, in the promised eternal king of David's line. In Kings, Jesus is the son of David, the true temple, the righteous king who restores Israel, and the prophet to non-Jews like Elijah and Elisha. In Chronicles, Jesus is the son of David who restores Israel from captivity and is their true temple. In Ezra and Nehemiah, Jesus is the true temple and the rescuer of his people from captivity. In Esther, Jesus is the one who saves his people from the enemies of God. In Job, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, Jesus is the son, the son of David, the forsaken by God, resurrected, run, anointed of God, the Lord of David. In Proverbs, Jesus is true wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. In Song of Solomon, Jesus is the husband to his people and we are the bride. In Isaiah, Jesus is the God with us, born of a virgin, the servant of the Lord, who's been given the spirit to preach good news to the poor, enslaved and non-Jews, the one who suffers in place of his people. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, Jesus is the one who brings a better covenant and is a righteous king like David. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the fruitful vine, the one that brings God's spirit to empower change lives, the true David, the prince of the true temple, upright shepherd, and the bringer of resurrection. In Daniel, Jesus is the son of man who receives authority over all things, the anointed one who is killed, the bringer of resurrection. In Hosea, Jesus is the son brought out of Egypt. In Joel, Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to his people. In Amos, Jesus is the one who restores Israel and saves the Gentiles. In Jonah, Jesus is the one who lived in the place of death for three days, yet lived to preach the gospel to non-Jews. In Micah, Jesus is the ruler of Israel, born in Bethlehem. In Nahum, Jesus is the one who brings good news of coming peace. In Habakkuk, Jesus is the one who commands his people to be saved by faith, but threatens with punishment those who reject him. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the one who punishes Israel by destroying them, but promises her restoration. And he's the one who dances and sings over us. In Haggai, Jesus is the one who threatens a terrible future judgment. And Zechariah, Jesus is the one who walks among the lampstands, the coming king into Jerusalem, the son that is mourned over when pierced and will be king over all the earth. In Malachi, Jesus is the messenger of the Lord who follows after Elijah-like predecessor. Amen. Amen. That would have been better if Becca had been up here, you know, going with the ivory. But this is what Jesus is preaching on the road to Emmaus as he's sitting there with these two disciples. And he does not fulfill only the messianic prophecies contained in the Old Testament. He fulfills the whole scripture because it points to him as the climax of God delivering his people. And here he is on the road making it clear, giving us a model for seeing him in all of scripture. And it sets the disciples right. It realigns them. As one writer says, Jesus did not overwhelm these two disciples by some spectacular revelation of himself that imposes faith on them. Instead, he interprets the scriptures for them. They need to hear the word of God to clear up the confusion of their own words. As we pursue him in scripture, we find him and we see redemption promised and delivered. 
It provides us comfort. It confirms our identity in him, and it answers all of the big questions of life. It steadies us in the storms. It shapes our celebrations. It becomes the central things of our lives, and it, it lights us up. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Talk about a cool reveal here. Because this is exactly what he does in the Lord's Supper. This is what he did in the miraculous feeding of the thousands. He's blessing and breaking like his body for us. And they knew it was him. And their hearts burned. love the story of John Wesley. There's hope for old preachers and old pastors because he had been doing ministry for years. And then he tells the story how his heart was strangely warmed by the finished work on the cross on May 24th of 1738. He went to a Christian fellowship one evening where he heard a man reading the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. And later he wrote in his journal, while he, Luther, was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This is redemption. While we require a supernatural work of God to understand the Bible, we are told here that Jesus opened their minds to understand scriptures. And so we posture ourselves to ask for that. When Jesus opens the scriptures to us, our hearts will burn with joy and insight. And I, I need, you need, we need the spirit to set us afire. So we line up the wood, bring our pain we bring our dreams, we bring our success, our lives, and his promise in the word, all of it, and we see what the Spirit will do. And it reshapes us when we see the promise of redemption, when we see Jesus, and he gives us eyes to see the purpose of redemption, forgiveness in him, and new life, and we can take great joy that this newborn king has actually delivered it to us. This gets us through. He is the hope in every hymn, the satisfaction in every song. He's why we gather, why we sing, and why we get up and face the day tomorrow. It's the redemption of the newborn king is realigning for humanity. Everything changes from this moment. All had seemed lost. But the third day for Luke is the day of resurrection, the day of redemption, the day of promises are realized. So as we look at it from our 2022 eyes, from our experience of life, it's an invitation to just surrender the constructs of our lives, the false things of faith that we've held on to, and instead just seek Jesus and seek his redemption. It's about forgiveness, being made righteous, so that like the disciples with burning hearts, we would rush out into the night to tell others, to tell them of forgiveness in his name, of purpose, of identity, and hope of eternity. I want to end with a, a new hymn called All the Earth Was Waiting. 
And all the earth was waiting long, anticipating for the true Messiah to come. In the chill of darkness, light became incarnate, king of glory cradled in straw. He is joy to the world, peace on earth. God has come to us, Emmanuel, hope for all the doubtful, mercy for the shameful, healer for the wounded and worn, Jesus our redeemer, counselor and keeper, Father's gift of love now outpoured. Come to him, the Lord of lords. Bring your sorrow, bring your joy. Worship and adore the one the world was waiting for. Jesus will return to reign, wiping every tear away. Death will be defeated. Earth and heaven will proclaim joy to the world, peace on the earth. God has come to us, Emmanuel, the Redeemer, our King, has won redemption for us. Let's live in him. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, sometimes we, in our honest moments, are just like these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Not sure things are unfolding the way that we had expected or maybe even just the way that we had hoped that they would unfold in our lives. Lord, we confess to having these preferences and preconceived ideas of what you might do, and we surrender them to you. And we ask you to reveal yourself through all of your word. We see the purpose of redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the citizenship in your kingdom, and that we would live from the promise of it, that we would be people of joy and celebration in the thick of life because we have met our Redeemer. Do it for your glory, Lord, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.